Okay, today I have Chris Jenkins with me, who is a friend from high school. It's been a long time, Chris, since I've seen you. So say hi um, to my audience. And Chris, you are a nurse and you work for the Salt Lake Fire Department. Tell me a little bit more too about who you are and what you've been up to since I saw you in probably 2003 was the last time. Yeah. Yeah. So I, about 10 years ago, really followed what I've wanted to do since high school. And that was become a firefighter. And in that I became a paramedic, which started my love for the medical field. So shortly after getting my paramedic and working for Ogden city fire department, I uh, went to nursing school, became a cath lab nurse. So heart procedures, um, kind of that stuff, but also worked in the ER just cause it kind of worked, um, with the paramedic thing. And I had a lot of good connections there and just continued my education. And so I've, yeah, I work the two days on four days off at the fire department. And on my days off, I go to the hospital and work at least two of those. So Wow. Very cool. I have to tell you that my daughter in the fall had, she had to have an emergency appendectomy and there was a nurse named Greg and Greg turned into her favorite person in the world because he made it so that she wasn't afraid of getting her IV. He made it, he just like made the whole experience so much easier for her and she still talks about him. So Those, the ER nurses have a special place in my heart for just from that experience alone. Yeah. So you guys really do such great work. And then I'm sure too, with the Salt Lake Fire Department, you're in the Salt Lake Fire Department now, right? Yes, that's correct. So a few years ago, I made the decision, uh, Salt Lake needed paramedics and there was just an opportunity. So I, uh, me and a couple of my friends took that opportunity and went to Salt Lake. Cool. That's amazing. I'm sure that's really fulfilling work too. So you were saying that was something that you wanted to do your whole life. Where did that come from? The, the, your love or passion for being a firefighter? So as cliche as it kind of sounds, it started uh, 9-11, um, the aftermath mm. and the importance of just first responders in general, kind of the importance of it. I just, for whatever reason, wanted kind of following that footsteps. It, they just seemed like someone, or they seemed like a group of people that were important. And that was kind of what started it. Yeah, I remember that so vividly too. It's weird, right? That there are kids now who that's like something they learn in a history class because that was something we experienced. I still remember, you know, hearing it on the radio on my way to Bountiful High and then walking into class and seeing, you know, the teachers like had it up on the video monitors that day. And just, it was weird that we experienced that. And there's kids who are now, you know, are like, oh yeah, what's, what was 9-11? It's a weird thing, but that's cool that that's where your passion came from. So let's fast forward to life now. So where did you find out about the opportunity to go volunteer as a nurse or first responder in New York during this COVID outbreak? So 9-11 being tied to New York, we were sitting around the table at, I was at the cath lab, so at the hospital and the governor was making a plea. He said he needed nurses and they were going to waive the state licensure. So I have a Utah state licensure, but that's the only place I can work. So that kind of was speaking to me a little bit like, well, I'm qualified. Like I, my nature is to try to be in the middle of whatever I can be is (laughs) if it's either nursing or firefighting, that's where I want to be. So 
So that night I talked to my wife and like wanted to see, get her opinion. And she knew, she said, if I didn't do it, we, I would be, I'd regret it. Yeah. So I just went in, I first, I talked to the fire department and they were extremely supportive of that. And then I talked to the hospital, same thing. And uh, my captain, the fire department happened to be one of the firefighters that went back during 9-11. Oh, wow. And uh, he, he ended up getting cancer because of it, but he still talked about the importance it's meant to him. And he was very supportive and he really is the one that like kind of logistically made this happen for me. Wow. So yeah. So then I just put my name out there <laughs> and I got a bunch of responses relatively quickly because they were in dire need. And uh, yeah. Yep. That's incredible. So then how quickly were you on a plane and on your way out there? It took two weeks. Uh, I wanted, it was about a week longer than I wanted, which was, but yeah, it was about two weeks. And then I was able to finally get out there and was there for a month. (laughs) Wow. So did they just have everything set up as far as like housing and all the logistics or was that something you had to figure out yourself? Uh, Fortunately, the company that I went with got me a nice kind of like apartment in mm-hmm. Manhattan. And then they also organized like a shuttle to bring me to my hospital that was in the Bronx. Wow. And, uh, so that was pretty nice. I did the flight and everything, but. Yeah. Wow. So when you got out there, I read on your blog that you were kind of expecting to be in the ER, right? Because that was your specialty. That's kind of where you're comfortable. And then tell me what happened. Yep. So when I got there, the contract was for ER and, uh, they, when I got there, the ER, the census, meaning like the amount of people that were actually going in and out were, was much lower, but the ICU, the whole hospital was an ICU. So they needed ICU nurses and Mm -hmm. a lot of people, a lot of nurses that took up this opportunity weren't ICU qualified. Okay. So because of a lot of my certificates that I have in my background, I told them that I was confident that I could do the job, but, uh, that I haven't really worked in an ICU, but they were more than willing to throw me in there. Yeah. So tell me what that first week was like. So yeah, that first week was more than, even more than what I expected. Uh, so a typical ICU, you're going to have two to three patients at the most that are critical. My first day, I believe I had six and they also, it was hundred percent COVID. They were all intubated. They all had a breathing tube is what that means. And they were on ventilators and then they were on pressure medication to increase their blood pressures. Cause if it dropped any lower, their, you know, vital organs wouldn't get the blood supply they needed. They were all on multiple drugs. So that first week it was just running from patient to patient, switching out their drips, making sure their ventilators were functioning, that I was suctioning appropriately. But the every day we had at least one die a few days I had two of my own patients die let alone the whole floor was having 10 or 11 die wow yeah and these are people who don't have like family members there to hold their hand or anything like that right they're just alone yeah absolutely the whole hospital was on shutdown so you were only there if you were sick or needed to be there so a lot of times what we did and um we would get on FaceTime or any other kind of video chat that we could to say goodbye to the family, but these patients weren't conscious, but we'd let them see them and we'd kind of tell them what was going on. And we tried to do that. We didn't get to that every time because sometimes they would pass before we had the opportunity to, but we did our best. Oh my gosh. Wow. I mean, that alone is just really heavy. Um, 
I guess just pausing there, what was that like for you? Was Did it just feel emotionally draining or did you feel like you had adrenaline to get through each day or what What did it feel like that first week? Well, as far as death, uh, being in, in the fire service, I deal with death, I'd say two or three times a week. And it's usually more surprising. So it's an accident. It's someone that's had a heart attack that wasn't expecting to die. So those are a little bit harder. Uh, is I don't want it to sound... <laughs> Uh, insensitive, but yeah, these patients, they, it was almost like we were keeping them alive to a detriment. So it wasn't super hard for me, but it was hard for a lot of these nurses that aren't used to it. So I, again, unfortunately, because of my career path, I am very used to death. Um, Mm -hmm. I feel like I was almost chose, that's why I was chosen to go. Like I was able to, you know, deal with it, be able, I was a team lead there. So I was able to, you know, keep my level head and yeah, absolutely. So tell me about how things progressed, I guess, from there. Cause you said it got it it was different week by week, right? It was. So yeah, that first week, like like we were saying, it was at its peak. I got there. So the week before was the start of the peak, and that's why I wish I was there one week earlier. But I was still there for the peak. And that whole week was just switching. I and I do mention this in the blog that I'd have patients die. We'd wrap them in a body bag and leave them there while someone who's still fighting for their life are right next to them in that same room. Oh my gosh. And that was very common because the people that were picking up the bodies were so backed up also. And there was nothing, so there was nowhere to put the bodies. It's not like we were doing it for any other reason other than we just didn't have a place to put them. Right. And your priority is to help people who are still struggling versus someone Yeah, who's already passed away. Exactly. So these days it feels like there's an app for everything. And I don't know if you know this, but there's actually an app that exists that will tell you if you're fertile or not. And you use it with a thermometer. It's really easy. And it's not just some like hokey gimmick. It is actually the first and only FDA cleared birth control app. And it is called Natural Cycles. So just like it sounds, it's completely natural. It doesn't affect your hormones. It's so nice that we finally have this alternative and it's hormone-free, easy to use. All you have to do is you wake up in the morning and you take your temperature as soon as you're awake and you enter into the Natural Cycles app for the most accurate read. And the more you use it, the more it can track your body and it uses an algorithm to tell you which days you're fertile and which days you're not. So basically, it's using this data to determine whether you're ovulating. Natural Cycles is 93% effective in preventing pregnancy when used typically and 98% when used perfectly. Natural Cycles can also help you monitor your moods and recommend the best time for a breast exam. You can also track your periods so that if you want to plan a pregnancy, you know when your last period was. That's always something that like is hard for me to remember. I swear when my doctor asks me, I'm always like, oh, I don't know. I'm trying to remember, like rack my brain. But if you're using the Natural Cycles app, you have that right in your app. So you can also, like I mentioned, plan a pregnancy. You just switch your app settings from prevent to plan. Natural Cycles is the natural and effective birth control alternative you've been searching for. Go to naturalcycles.com slash mintarrow and use promo code mintarrow to get 20% off an annual subscription plus a free thermometer. That's naturalcycles.com slash mintarrow, promo code mintarrow for 20% off an annual subscription and a free thermometer. All users must be 18 years old and older. Natural Cycles does not protect from STDs. Only condoms and other barrier methods can. 
So, and then by week two, um, that's when another big contract, I think the FEMA contract um, started. So we got a huge amount of nurses coming into the hospital and that was helpful for workload. The patients were still sick, but it just didn't feel as rushed. Cause I, so typically I would be given a, a like a nurse, a nurse that would just help me with drugs while I did the pump and the vent and they would just do like the other kind of lower acuity type stuff. Mm-hmm. And that was really helpful. And, uh, but the patients, like I say, that we were still at full capacity. The patients were still extremely sick. We were still losing several a day. And then by week three, there was a change in the amount of sick patients. The patients we started getting actually started to have a shot to live. They would live, but we would be discharging them to like long-term nursing facilities where they'd get like a trach for the rest of their life. Oh my gosh. So still, it was a battle to me that wasn't super satisfying. I didn't feel like we were making a huge difference in the patient's lives. Again, what I did feel was the mission of the of going out there was helping the nurses that were there, the the New York nurses that didn't ask for any of this, that were just overwhelmed immediately, that would go home yeah. in tears every night. I felt like I saw a change in their countenance and their, you know, I felt like we made a big difference in their lives. For sure. Yeah, I think a lot of people you know, it's it's hard because I keep hearing conversations here where we live of people saying like, do you even know anyone who's yeah. who's gotten this or who's died? And, you know, everyone like people just recover from this. And I'm like, mm, I don't know. And your blog really influenced me and affected me when I read it and and read about your experiences. And and then I had a very good friend who's father passed away um, in New York. And, you know, when I finally got to talk to her about it, she said that one of her biggest concerns wasn't necessarily whether he would die. He was on a, um, a ventilator for 29 days, I think, or 30 days or something. And she said at that point, it was less about whether he was going to live and more about if he does live, how miserable is he going to be? That's he, Yeah, she's 100%. That's what that's, was my feeling with almost every patient I had. It almost felt like, to what end am I doing all this? Right. And I think that a lot of people who feel like it's a little bit out of sight, out of mind, and this isn't really, it's just like an overblown, you know, a few people are getting the flu and a sore throat and then they're fine. Yeah. <laughs> that it actually isn't the case for everyone who's gotten COVID. And and the point of this interview is not at all to get into any type of political debate, but right. just to demonstrate that for the reality of people who do get this and who do have, you know, conditions or whatever that, or, or whatever type of circumstance that puts them in that position where they need to be on a ventilator, it's pretty, pretty devastating from that point on for a lot of people. I mean, even here, cause I've talked to, I spoke with several physicians and stuff. The The goal is to avoid the ventilator. Once you, once you're on the ventilator, it's because it, there's not another option, but it's also, a high probability they're not going to get off it. But I had a physician back in New York that explained coronavirus really well. And this it's, it's a bully. So if it gets in our bodies and we're strong enough, it's going to leave us alone. But if it gets in there and there's something it can take advantage of it, we'll do it. Absolutely take advantage of it. And we have mm-hmm. plenty of people in our lives that we don't realize are vulnerable that probably, yeah. and that's where it comes into play the significance of it anyway. Right, right. So describe to me a typical day as far as for someone who 
just doesn't have connection to anyone who's been in the medical field or especially when you were out there in New York working on this, you know, medical front lines. Describe to me what a typical day is like for someone that, because you, I think you said in your blog that you had one full day off in a month, right? That's Yeah. So I worked six 13-hour shifts. Oh my gosh. And they were the night shifts. So when I would come home uh, on that one day off a week, I'd actually still be working half that day. Wow. So I was, there was a, Every single day I was there, I was in the hospital at some point during that day. But there was one day where I had my first and last day off, came to where I had two days off in a row. So one of those days, I didn't have to go to the hospital at all. Um, But so, yeah, my typical day there, uh, I guess I'll start just with coming home because that'd be easier in the morning. I'd get off at like 8.30 and then I'd take my shuttle, get into my apartment around 9, 9.15. Shower, like I had a whole routine of making sure I wouldn't contaminate anything. So I'd like a corner where I'd drop everything and then I'd go shower before I touched anything. Then I would eat something small and then sleep till about one. I'd wake up and do a workout just because I try to, it just help helps me mentally. And yeah, totally. And after the workout, I would study and I'd usually pick something because, again, I, w- I wanted to be as competent as possible. And I'd never worked in an I- ICU. So I'd, I'd obviously, I'd study the coronavirus, I'd study new treatments or what possible medications I'd use. And funny thing with that, there were several times I would study something and then later that day it would present itself completely wow. by whatever you, <laughs> you believe, if it was a coincidence or like more of a like a tender mercy or something, mm-hmm. I would, I found a lot of comfort in that because, and it kept me motivated to study. But so then I would usually study until about four thirty-five, and then I would have to take the shuttle to be there by six and I would start my uh, shift. <laughs> so I'd go there, I'd talk to the, I'd usually have to find three or four nurses to get a report from because you're taking so many nurses, not, you're not just taking all the nurses from one or all the patients from one nurse, you're taking patients from several nurses. So I'd have to track mm-hmm. each one down to get a report from, from them to see what we're going to do and yep, then do my rounds <laughs> throughout. The wow. Night. Yeah. And was it like, um, I guess once you were at the hospital, what was the feeling like there as far as people working together? Was it, you know, I guess, what was the energy like as far as the medical workers together? So that first week, it was really chaotic and it was very battlefield-esque. Like it was mm-hmm. just kind of everyone running. Very There are a lot of alarms, a lot of people dying at the same time. So there's just a lot of background noise. So it didn't seem like there was a lot of great communication, especially that first week. And on the floor I was at, I had about five or six resident doctors, no attending doctor. So a resident, someone who's technically still in school, but they're, I mean, all they're doing is learning on the job, essentially. Right. To be nice about it or to put it nicely, mm-hmm. I felt like they were doctors that had the training wheels taken off with when they weren't ready, just because they didn't, there wasn't a choice. They need, yeah. they needed bodies. So at, but by week two, I felt like a lot of these travel nurses we have a lot of different experiences and a lot of different backgrounds that we were able to start to collaborate with the physician, start to show our strengths. And uh, again, me being a heart nurse, I had a few 
several occasions where different nurses would come to me with EKGs and with heart problems and ask me my opinion. And I actually got a pretty good reputation through that hospital, even with the doctors about dealing with the cardiac issues. And there mm-hmm. was other, there was intensive, there's other nurses with similar skill sets, you know, that we would rely on. So we did become a big team, I th- like a, yeah, a good team after around week two. What do you feel like was the most helpful thing that happened? Or like what were some of the wins or what were some of the positive things that happened as your time went on as far as like with the patients or with the staff? Yeah, I'd say the staff would be the big win again that um, I got really close to several of them and they were they would describe those first few weeks as they would just go home and cry. They None of them could go home to their families. They all had to stay at these hotels. Yeah. And they, they were just talking about how overwhelmed they, they, you know, they didn't look forward to going to work. But by the time we started to help them, they, you know, we were laughing eventually make, you know, having a good time when we could. And they felt more excited again, I guess, to go back to work. They didn't yeah. feel like going in. Well, I'm sure uh, you were be- lifting burdens. I'm sure you were like, you know, taking a lot of that heavy lifting away from people who felt like they were just given way more than they could handle at first. Yeah, for sure. And then I did have one patient that I had several times that he came up because they thought he was going to need to be innovated and that it was just going to go down the typical COVID spiral. Yeah. For whatever reason, we like, like we all had him or most of it, we switched off with him because he didn't take as much effort. But anyway, he, he recovered. And by my last shift, um, he was able to go home on a cannula, so just a couple liters of oxygen. And he he was the nicest guy, and uh, it was good to actually have one recover. That yeah, so that's awesome. Yeah, is this the guy? There was one of your posts talked about somebody that just asked for some little thing, and I'm trying to remember exactly yeah. what it was. Yeah, it's this guy. So I, I went in to give him his Ambien to sleep at night. Mm-hmm. And he, he was like, Oh, I don't like, I, he's, he was saying that it was like nine or 10 o'clock at night. And he was asking if he wanted to tell me he didn't want it till 12. Cause he just like, he was he likes to stay awake. And, and, uh, and I said, no problem, but he's like, well, you know what? You're in here. I don't want to have to make you come in here again. Let me take it. I was like, no, dude, we're here for you. Like, I just thought it was so funny that he was so considerate, like yeah. for me just to go into it. He didn't, he wanted to limit the time I was in his room. Uh, which was obviously nothing for me just to wait a couple hours. I just, but. Yeah. So, and that's such a, like, that's just such a sweet story. There's gotta be, it's just, I don't know. It's so nice to hear like the humanity and the silver lining in, you know, this like really heavy work that you were doing. So were you worried at all? And was your wife worried when you went out to put yourself at risk and, you know, possibly contract this or bring it back to your family? What were your feelings as far as making yourself vulnerable? Yeah, I, I mean, I 100% went thinking I was going to get it. My even my chief, we had a we were talking on the phone before I left and we were making my plans to quarantine when I got home and trying to figure out what I would do if I was too sick to come back to work. Cause I wasn't going to be able to use worker comp for the fire department because it's clearly not related. 
And as so as uh, yeah, was, I definitely that was on my mind. I thought that was one of the reasons I felt impression to go. I feel like I take I take pretty good care of myself, and uh, if I were to get it, I'd probably have a good outcome. So I thought, you know, if I just felt like I was a good candidate to go out there and help, if even if I did get it. Yeah, because you said you're really healthy. You were, I saw on your blog you said you went running. You you know you talked about working out a lot. So. Um, that makes sense. Was your family, were you guys nervous as far as like bringing something back to your family or did you just feel like it was going to be okay? No, I did. Yeah. The, again, the plan was to quarantine away from my family when I got home. Um, they lived, when I went away, they went to live with my in-laws and they just stayed there. So I was just going to come home, take the tests and then, you know, go five or six days and then see them. But I did test negative for antibodies and for the Corona test. So when I got home, I, I saw my kids cause I, <laughs> it had been a long time. Yeah. yeah. That video is just amazing. I t- totally cried like every other probably woman that watched that, you know, <laughs> just so tender to see your little kiddos run up to you and hug you. So I want to ask about what, what were some of the hardest things that you experienced or that you feel like you saw or that some of your coworkers or people that you were working with had to see or experience while you were out in New York? So the one case that kind of tugged at me a little bit was my, the first patient that I received from the floor, and this was my first day, um, that wasn't innovated. She, she only spoke Spanish, which I happened to speak Spanish. So mm-hmm. I spoke with her. Um, she, she was in a lot of distress, but she was pretty upbeat for the most part. And she was really relieved. I spoke Spanish, you know, I, we were able to have like a good conversation, able to make her laugh. So that night while she was still conscious and not in a lot of, well, you know, she was with it enough that, that she watched someone die in her room. She watched CPR. She watched us throw, put him in a body bag. And then we left that patient with her for about six hours until they were able to remove that body. So, I mean, I knew that that was going to be hard on her. Well, the next day, my next shift, I came in and I went to do my rounds on her and she was just, she couldn't breathe. She couldn't talk. Um, She grabbed me by the arm and just, and she told me she wanted a tube in her throat. She said, I can't breathe, do something. And so the nurse had just told me that she was doing pretty good for the most part. Mm -hmm. Um, So this, that it was a pretty rapid onset of just complete failure. So, So I ran out, I grabbed a doctor. And right before we put the tube in her throat, she said she didn't want to die. And she kind of looked over to that bed and and we intubated her and um, we were able to stabilize her on that shift. And then my third shift, um, I had her again and all like, well, around midnight that night, she just started to her just decompensate and just not do well. And I, I put a lot of effort (laughs) into trying to keep her alive around five or six in the morning she ended up dying that day. And, and she was the one patient like I actually got to know. So that was different than the other patients that were already innovated when I had them and already, you know, they already had such poor out, like the outlook was so poor already. So that was definitely one of the harder moments. Yeah. Gosh, that's heartbreaking. And I would imagine too, I'm just trying to put myself in these people's shoes, like not being, it's really hard for me to even think about 
not being able to have a family member there, like holding your hand or being there with you, like that you're doing these goodbyes or that these people are are slowly declining and their only connection with their family is FaceTime. Yeah. Like that's just so hard for me to even picture. Yeah. And a couple of times uh, we did, we were able to be, when we were going to innovate someone since the, the chances of survival, once you were innovated were so low, if we were going to innovate somebody, we would give them the opportunity to say goodbye over one of those platforms. And I saw that happen a couple of times. I don't know if that was a good thing or a bad thing, but they were able to say goodbye. So. Oh, that's so hard. Um, and did you guys explain that to people? Like this is what their probability was of surviving after that? Or was Absolutely. that kind of, Every, yeah. And that's what the people that we had to innovate that were already on our floor, you, they, they had the same look every single time. And they, it's almost like they knew they were going to die if they had the two, but they wanted it. They just could not breathe anymore. And the, like the panic, the, it's just, it was a, it, that is something I've never seen. And I've seen a lot of people, you know, in their last moments, but that, that like look of despair or just giving up essentially. But we would always tell them, and I, I did mention the blog and I don't have the exact numbers, but it was, it's something like 82% of the patients that were innovated ended up dying. And then that number increased to 92% if they require two pressors, meaning medication that increases their blood pressure. So, and again, most of my patients had both of those. So, yeah. Um, I guess I, I want to ask another thing too. I think a lot of people feel like, oh, it's just old people that are dying. Did you, did you see that? Was it mostly people who were over a certain age or was it kind no. of a mix? So I, yeah, I would say, and this is my biggest takeaway. And, and it goes back to that comment about the bullies. It has nothing to do with age in my experience. I'm sure the numbers may say differently over uh, like the national statistics, but in my experience, it was comorbidities or, and that like underlining health conditions. Mm -hmm. So I would say the majority of my patients were from 40 to 65. And, oh, okay. And they all were, and they, you know, most of them ended up dying, but they all had diabetes or some other kind of kidney issue, previous cancers. It, they had something that you could link to the disease attacking, essentially. Um, previous heart attacks, strokes, all that stuff um, was a bigger, to me, was a bigger impact on an outcome than age, for sure. Yeah. I actually had a 20-year-old die, which was the youngest in the, on the floor. By the time I left, it was the youngest patient. Wow. He also had kidney issues and some other problems, so. Yeah. Wow. What's um, really interesting because I do hear so many people say like, oh, it's just older people. And and also every time I hear that, I'm like, just older people? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> do you not care about your grandparents? Because I do. Yeah, that's what um, I like. I my Both my parents, they're in their early 70s, early to mid 70s. And I don't think they'd survive it. But I'm definitely not ready to have them go. Right. Um. So to me, it's I think it's pretty selfish when people say it that way. Cause you know, I have three kids that enjoy their company. I still go golfing with my dad. Like they're definitely not fragile or they're fragile in the way that they, you know, they both have their underlying health conditions, but they're, they have meaningful lives still. Totally. Totally. So I want to um, shift the conversation a little bit and just ask, you talked about that kind of tender mercy that you would read or study, which I think is so cool that you were spending your free time trying to be as educated and prepared as possible. So you would read or study before your shift. 
And then whatever you would read oftentimes would pop up in that next shift. Were there other tender mercies or things that happened that you feel like were really special or kept you going or that were, you know, things that you could share? Well, I I mean, so I served a two-year mission for my church and about the one-year mark, um, the the leader, like the mission president, the guy that's in charge of everything, he told me to start thinking about what my career path should be because I'd never be more in tuned spiritually than I was at that moment. Oh, interesting. And that's when I just made, I made the decision to be like, I want to be a public servant. So I also rely on, like, I felt like a lot of this stuff is a calling. Like I was, I was too young to contribute for 9-11. So I feel like this was my 9-11 moment to be able to go back there. Yeah. But as far as, I mean, I, again, testing negative for the for COVID, not ever having true symptoms when I'm there, all that I feel was, you know, a blessing. Uh, a lot of the, a lot of the travel nurses, all of the travel nurses actually that I talked to except for one tested negative. So I feel like we were all kind of being watched over, you know, we, we all wore our masks religiously, our N95s and we were very well protected, but still we were, I think we were protected. So, yeah. Yeah. That's a huge blessing. Um, what was it like for you connecting with your family back at home too? Like, were you guys like, was that a hard part as far as being able to see your kids or see your family? Was that, what was that sacrifice like for you guys? It was harder for me for the first two weeks than it was for them because of my job as a firefighter. They're used to, for me, they're used to having me gone for a couple of days. But when I left to them, it was, I'll just dad's going to work again. And it wasn't until about week and a half, the week and a half mark that they realized, wait, this is different. He's not back. He should be back by now. Yeah. Cause your kids are what age? They're kind of younger, right? Yeah. Seven, five and one and a half. Yeah. And so my oldest definitely, he, he started bawling on the way to the airport. So I think he, he understood the whole time, but the other two didn't, obviously the really little one didn't. So we, but we did FaceTime a couple times a day. Usually when I'd wake up from my nap or whatever that's called. <laughs> and then mm-hmm. right before I would head into work. So I'd see him a couple times and uh, obviously it wasn't the same. And I missed my little, my one and a half year old I grew a tremendous amount when I was gone, started yeah. new words, new, you know, funny actions. So that was tough. Uh, but it was, it was definitely rewarding to see them for the first time and actually have the emotion they had. Yeah. That was so special to, I, I was so glad that you shared that cause it was so sweet and it just really made that sacrifice that you, that I had read about on your blog and that you talked about feel even more real, like, wow, this, and I don't know if I told you this, but my family for the first several months. So let's see the shutdown here started the second week of March, I think was when our kids got pulled out of school, everything changed. It was the end of, I still remember, it was the end of the second week of March, I'm pretty sure, um, out in California. And then I had our baby, we have a two-month-old baby, on May 8th. So from March to May, I just know that we stopped right about the time that I, well, not right about, but exactly the time that I went to the hospital and had the baby. After that, I was just recovering, so we didn't do this anymore. But for the that solid two months, every single night... We went out, well, no, it didn't start, sorry, I keep like backpedaling, but it didn't start at the very beginning, but probably mid-March, 
I was on FaceTime with my parents who are serving a mission in Spain right now, and they were on the strictest lockdown basically in the world. Like Spain's lockdown was crazy. They weren't allowed to go on a walk. You were only allowed to leave your apartment if you had a dog to walk or if you had to go to a pharmacy or to get groceries. And other and my parents couldn't even go together to get groceries. Only one adult. Kids weren't allowed to play outside. I mean, it was so strict. And so they, this first night that this happened, I was talking to my parents on FaceTime and my dad was like, oh, what's going on outside? And there were all these people cheering and the police cars were honking and they had their sirens on and all these people were out on their balconies cheering. And then I looked it up the next day and my dad just starts clapping and whistling and he doesn't even know what's going on, but he just joins in. And then the next day I looked it up and found that this was like a hashtag that was trending in Spain for people to go out on their balconies and cheer and clap for the medical field and um, all the frontline workers for COVID. And so we said, well, we should do that here. So for basically two months, every single night, my kids and I would go out on our balcony and my husband, and we would clap for the medical community. And we got all of our neighbors involved. And I got so many DMs from people who said, I love that you do this. I feel so appreciated. And it was something that, you know, we just really felt so much gratitude, even though none of us have knock on wood, gotten COVID so far. And we haven't been to the hospital for that reason. I just still, it was really important to my husband and to me to support that medical community and show our support and teach our kids. Like these are the people that are putting their lives at risk to be heroes and to help save so many lives or to help people who get sick. And so I'm just wondering, did you ever experience that? Did you see that in New York? Cause I heard it was going on there too. Every night at seven o'clock, in Manhattan, well, everywhere, but I lived in Manhattan. So I only saw yeah. you got to see it on the days that I was off, but it was awesome. And it really, yeah, it, you do feel the appreciation. That was one of my favorite things. One, one day me and another nurse ran up to the top of our, it was like 26 floors and we watched mm-hmm. it from the top and it was awesome. Um, oh, and it would last cool. like 10 minutes, if not longer. Uh, but yeah, that definitely is something that I'm obviously part of a lot of different groups, cath lab groups, ER groups on like Facebook or whatever. Mm-hmm. And everybody was posting their gratitude to hearing it and stuff. So it was well appreciated throughout the country. Yeah, that's really cool. That's so awesome. Is there like one memory that you feel like or one thing that you learned from this that you'll take away that you'll remember forever that maybe something that changed you forever or something that you'll want to teach your kids later on? I don't know. Just, I guess like a spiritual, it's more of like a spiritual thought. And I don't know if it's a new thought necessarily to this, but more like was reinforced, but the whole faith without works, like wearing my PPE, going out there, doing what I knew I needed to do and then being protected, you know, through my, and like, again, going back to the study thing, knowing if I study that I was going to be like that I'd be sharper than I would have been otherwise or yeah, just show like if I put my effort in, the rest of it's going to kind of take care of itself. Yeah. What a powerful message. And to be able to tell your kids those stories and teach them with something that you were able to experience yourself. Um, okay. I have one last question for you that I always ask everyone. 
And that is, if there's one message that you want people to remember from this episode, what do you want that one message to be? This isn't about the individual. It's about us as a whole, COVID in general. Like, uh, if we just need to do our part to make sure that everyone's safe. Yeah. Well, I think this interview really has been even more eye-opening to me than just reading your blog, which we will link to. But um, it's powerful to hear what your experiences were like and what that sacrifice was like for you and for your family. And and I appreciate it so much. And I think so many people need to hear just, you know, what that was like and what it's really like for those who suffer through <laughs> what you know, COVID really is like for someone who, who contracts that and who ends up, you know, having to experience that. So I'm just really grateful for your sacrifice for what you did and for also just being willing to share this message with me and with my audience, because it's, it really is powerful. And, um, I just, I hope that people can hang on to the opportunity for us to come together instead of being divided. Everyone's so divided right now in a lot of places and in a lot of the debates that go on and the the things that are kind of tearing people apart. I I hope that people can come back to or remember, you know, listening to this, remember the humanity and all of this and remember um, how we can, yeah, really care for one another and and think about each other and think about you know like you said really taking taking care of each other through yeah. this yeah I agree so um we're gonna link to your blog in the show notes and um so that people can read your experiences there and is that something you plan on um adding anything to or or is that just kind of a journal that you're gonna keep uh, Maybe we'll see. I one one of my biggest regrets in my career is not taking enough or not writing enough journal entries because I've I've seen and done so much with within the fire department and yeah. paramedic that so it may evolve into some of that stuff. I have to be careful with HIPAA, especially with some of the stuff that gets put on the news. I can't really elaborate just because people can tie it back to certain patients and stuff yeah. but I do finish, I, it may evolve I haven't wrote I haven't written anything yet since I've been back but yeah well it's a really powerful um record like you said of just you know your journaling and what that was like for you and I'm grateful that you did that grateful for this interview today so thanks again for your time yeah, thank you Thanks so much for listening to Mint Arrow Messages. Make sure you follow us on Instagram at Mint Arrow. Subscribe to our Apple Podcasts and rate and review us if you like us. And to get show notes, go to mintarrow.com slash podcast. And you can even sign up to get show notes emailed right to your inbox. And we'll email you every time there's a new episode.